In this episode of Policy, Guns and Money's Bigger Picture series, Dr. Robert Glasser speaks to Dr. Dino Paddy Jalal, founder of Foreign Policy Community of Indonesia. They consider Indonesia's climate vulnerabilities and why climate change needs to be placed at the top of Indonesia's national agenda. They also highlight the need to be bold when it comes to climate policy and why it is essential for Australia and Indonesia to move away from coal and towards renewables. Okay, Dino, thank you very much for joining us on this ASPI podcast to talk about climate change in Indonesia. And the timing could not be better with the uh, climate COP in Glasgow starting uh, on the 31st of this month. Well, I'm glad to be here, Robert. And it's a big year for climate change. And my organization, uh, Foreign Policy Community of Indonesia, has been pushing very hard for strong, progressive Indonesian uh, climate policies. Yeah. So, uh, fingers crossed. So maybe why don't we get get right into the discussion? Um, I guess one of the the first points that jumps to mind for us is that when we when we look at the science of climate change and the impacts, Indonesia seems really highly exposed to climate hazards. And it would be great to have your impressions about that. And I guess they're not only the climate hazards, they're also the geological ones, earthquake, volcano. So, yeah, it sounds like uh, quite a complex soup of hazards that could be increasing in Indonesia. Yeah, well, uh, our natural terrain makes us very vulnerable. Uh, We are the largest archipelago in the world, very much a maritime uh, country. We have a lot of seas, a lot of islands, 17,000 islands. So uh, we are very much exposed, right? Uh, I know when they designed the uh, Paris Climate Treaty, uh, one of the main concerns uh, to determine the rise of temperature to just 1.5 degree is uh, due to demands of some smaller island nations uh, that we got to be very ambitious because otherwise they would be drowned under sea. Uh, a lot of Indonesian islands uh, would be like that uh, as well. And in fact, uh, in Indonesia, about uh, 75% of our cities are in the coastal uh, areas. Right? Uh, so we are very much uh, vulnerable to it. And uh, it is estimated in Jakarta, where I live, 95% of uh, the coastal areas in the capital city could be submerged by 2050. Right? Uh, I think President Biden has even... Uh, refer uh, to that. So, uh, yes, uh, it's a serious thing. Uh, Recently, we had the uh, cyclone uh, called Cyclone Saroja. And usually, uh, this is in East Nusa Tenggara, north of uh, Australia. And usually when we have cyclones, uh, it's out in the sea, right? Uh, But this was the first time that cyclone went on land and created so much destruction uh, of properties, uh, infrastructure, and lives were lost as well. And uh, it is said that it is the first time, but definitely not the last time. Uh, and you know, uh, on the extreme weathers uh, around the world, they say there, there are extreme happenings once every 20 years before, right? But now extreme weathers happen once every two years or even more frequent than that, right? Uh, and uh, in Indonesia, we had, uh, in 2019, 3,622 natural disasters, of which 90%, around 90% were the result of climate change. Right? So it's, it's quite serious, Robert. And 
my organization late last year made a public alert that despite the COVID-19 crisis, climate change has to be placed back on top of the national agenda. And I'm glad it's heading in that direction. Yeah, I, I know people when they think of sea level threat from climate change, they think of the Pacific Island countries. But there's a, some recent science that, that actually sea level is rising faster in Indonesia than anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a few million people, as you pointed out, you know, population of Indonesia is 275 million, I think. And so it's really tens of millions of people just in one country exposed to these hazards. So yeah, it sounds very worrying. Um, I also saw um, the, you may know that US government put out a new climate and security national intelligence assessment. Mm-hmm. When you look at Indonesia, it's one of the countries that they've highlighted that is most at risk um, to, uh, to climate and security risk. So maybe um, it would be great to ask you about that. How do you think as if you imagine these climate hazards increasing, the sea level, the cyclone risk, you know, the extreme El Niño, La Niñas, how do you think this will unfold in the country, in, in Indonesia? What about the ability to cope, the government's capacity to respond to disasters? What do you think about that? Just general impressions would be interesting to hear. Look, I think the Indonesian government we uh, don't do enough simulations. You know, you know, I say that as a former government official, right? And I think they need to do more simulations. This is the, the best lesson from COVID-19 because we had a defense white paper that identified virus or pandemic as a potential threat. So that's very much there theoretically in our defense planning, but it was never acted on. And uh, there was not much preparation done so that when COVID-19 did come, uh, we were just totally unprepared. So uh, I think that's the best lesson uh, in anticipation of the coming climate uh, threat. And the difference is, uh, whereas COVID started uh, destroying things within immediately within one year or so, uh, the climate threat uh, is much less obvious, right? But uh, our finance minister, Sri Mulyani, has said that the threat coming for, from climate change dwarfs the damage done by COVID-19, right? Uh, now, uh, recalibrating government policies to uh, factor in climate risks is uh, the big challenge. So, for example, Indonesians had been very blissful in talking about Centennial Indonesia, 2045, right? But all our projections about 2045 is self-praising. You know, well, we're going to be the top four economies in the world. We're going to be, you know, largest middle class in Southeast Asia. We're going to be this and that, developed country and so on. But not one analysis until recently, not one analysis have posed the question of, what if that centennial Indonesia would live in a four degree world, right? Four degree temperature rise, which would be hell, which would be marked by not just extreme weather, but forest fires. Uh, you can't go outside because it's so hot. Uh, it's going to uh, uh, affect food security. There's going to be flood everywhere. Uh, you know, life is going to be very uncomfortable, right? 
So uh, I think this is the year, Robert, where a lot of government officials are, are starting to put climate risks both in, in development planning, in security planning, in, in public health planning, in economic planning, and also business planning. I think so too. I think uh, the sooner we do risk assessments of how the climate impacts will evolve, the better. But I know one of the reasons we haven't done this in Australia is because there's so many urgent priorities that people think that a bit like your what you said about COVID virus preparations in your plan in Indonesia's planning, you know, it may not happen and, and we have so many urgent priorities today. So it's easy not to invest. I don't know how you get around that, uh, other than that I guess there are going to be more and more disasters and people will maybe demand action. I think uh, there there is a, a sense of that that look we got more urgent things uh, to worry about, right? Uh, and we saw that last year because uh, during the COVID nineteen crisis, whereas Europe put about thirty five percent of green investment in their stimulus, right, economic stimulus. I think Indonesia, it was much less. I think, if I'm not mistaken, somebody said 0.4% of green investment in the economic stimulus, right? Uh, so uh, that thinking is there. Look, we got more urgent things uh, uh, to worry about. But I think uh, there is now a, a realization that the world is changing. The world economy is changing and you got to get ahead of the pack, right? Uh, so what, what I've been telling uh, the public and, and government uh, people is that look at globalization, right? Globalization came around and in the 60s, Indonesia was scared of it, right? We saw it as a threat and only a few countries saw it as an opportunity and they embraced it. And as a result, they became winners, right? I mean, China too, you know, China closed its door and then opened up and now China is, uh, you know, one of the top economies of the world, right? Uh, so the lesson was, we only caught on once everybody else caught on and proceeded with it. And we became a latecomer to globalization. And that's why it was hard for us to become a winner uh, for it. The same thing with uh, uh, you know, low carbon economy, green growth, right? That's definitely the way for the future. If we say, okay, let's just not do this now, let others do it, uh, then Indonesia will fall behind uh, and we will need to play catch up again. It's, it's much better to just take the risk, be courageous, grab the bull by the horn and uh, be progressive and take uh, action for, for uh, green uh, green growth uh, from, from now on. You know, after all, you know, I, I read something incredible the other day that ESG investment, environmental, social, and governance investment, it was it amounted to $53 trillion, right? I mean, that's huge, right, Robert, right? Yeah. So if Indonesia can show that, look, we are worth the ESG money, right? Uh, as opposed to we don't care about those things, uh, then, then we can, I think we, we can do quite well. Uh, in, in the economy of the future. I think I saw a similar study, uh, a report that said that now over 50% of global asset managers, of the global total assets that are being managed, 
uh, the organizations have committed to net zero by 2050. So that's within the asset portfolios. So that's a huge, huge thing. But actually, Dino, that's a good link into the energy discussion because this is one area where Australia and Indonesia have something in common. We're both we're the two largest exporters of coal globally. So this is, and our prime minister in Australia has just announced net zero, but he has not said, he said very little about cutting coal and reducing coal exports. In fact, he said he's going to leave it up to the market to decide that issue. How is this unfolding in Indonesia? And what do you think the prospects are for managing this huge energy transformation? The politics around that would be interesting to hear about as well. Yeah, well, first, uh, the coal price is high now, Robert, right? It's unusually high. So it's, it's a bit hard to convince the, the coal people uh, to start uh, to let go, right? And secondly, um, our electricity supply is predominantly coal-based. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's 70% or something. And on top of that, the renewable energy uh, target has been very sluggish. We aim at 23% renewable by 2025, and now we're only at 11%. Right, and there's no way we're gonna get 23% in 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 the, in the next uh, three or four years, right? And on top of that, the coal people, coal industry, they are politically powerful, right? They support political parties, they support uh, politicians, and and so on, right? So it's uh it's a bit of difficult uh, situation, but definitely everybody knows the answer. The answer is you gotta phase out coal for the long term. You, and you got to increase renewable energy. Like China has aimed for 80% renewable by 2060. And, you know, China doesn't make a target uh, unless they really know they can do it. Yeah. Yeah. So Indonesia has to be uh, quite bold, uh, especially in phasing out coal and especially in proving to the market that if you invest in renewables, you'll, you'll make profit. Uh, so Indonesia, uh, wind is not so prospective, but solar and hydro are prospective renewables. But for solar, the tariff is still quite high, right? Uh, there's an Emirati company that is uh, called Masdar investing in solar in West Java, floating solar. And, you know, I don't think they're going to make the, the, the reclaim their capital, their investment until another 10 or 15 years, you know. And uh, it took some arm twisting to get the right tariffs just to make sure that, that they will earn some profit uh, in the end. And as you know, companies are not going to uh, invest anywhere where there's no profit, right? So so I think, uh, you know, the government has to make a, a lot of tough calls on, on, on coal. And, you know, uh, but the good news, Robert, is that I know at least two coal families, big one, the big players. I can't say who they are. And good friends of mine, you know, play tennis with them. And, you know, they've told me, uh, do you know, uh, we've seen the signs of the world. Uh, the world is going to be hostile to coal business and we are divesting away, right? So one is divesting for nickel and others are divesting for EV and, and so on. Uh, there's one, one of the big coal families said that 70% of their income will come from uh, EV uh, and uh, there will be zero from coal. Right? So, you know, let's hope there will be more families like that. 
I, th I think your point about uh, coal being connected to the politics in Indonesia applies to Australia as well. Uh, that's why. In the coalition government, uh, there are a number of key members of the coalition who, who, who come from constituencies that are in coal-producing areas, and that's the balance in the, in the government's ability to implement policies. So not, in a way, it's not surprising that Australia's net-zero commitment doesn't say much about coal. But maybe, as you've also pointed out, the isn't there anyone who who argue uh, to them that you know net zero and climate security? This is a long term permanent security of our future generation, and it cannot be hijacked by uh, you know a small group of vested interests who are profit oriented, right? Uh, isn't that argument being made uh, in Australia? It, it's interesting. It is being made, but usually, in the, of course, by the opposition and also a lot of the climate activists in Australia. But it is true that um, there's, uh, yeah, that, that that has been a major stumbling block, the coalition governments that rely on key votes like that. But as you've also pointed out, the market, the cost of renewables is dropping and the market may speed up this transition even faster than governments realize. Yes. I think, uh, I really think the, the key, Robert, is in, in private sector because what will drive change will be, in my view, uh, the private sector and, and uh, civil society. But in order for that to happen, uh, you have to unlock the gates. And how do you unlock the gates? Is by government policies. So the government must set policies that provide incentives and, and regulate activities that will lead to green growth, right? Uh, and unfortunately, in Indonesia, that is not happening optimally. It's happening a little bit, but not optimally. And and the private sector has not been incentivized enough uh, so that they will uh, take risks and invest in renewables, for example, and do away from coal and, and things like that. So, Dino, let me change tack a bit and ask you a question uh, relating to climate and security, because this, the center, the center I had is focuses on climate and security policy and our analysis when we look at our region, particularly maritime Southeast Asia, is that there's some big risks with climate change to food security in particular, both impacts directly in the region like droughts, the things you said, droughts, floods, sea level rise, cyclones, and the fact that they're happening all at once and, and one right after the other as well, that communities and farmers don't have a chance to recover and that those impacts are also happening outside of the region and other parts of Southeast Asia that say export rice. So this is just a broad question. How do you think those climate and security risks will unfold? If you agree that they're, they're serious and what's, uh, so what do you think the implications will be for Indonesia? You know, I, I read recently a report by World Resource Institute, uh, Robert, that, uh, if large parts of Greenland were to melt, that is about five to six meters worth of seawater, right? And the, the, the chance of that happening is, is quite good because, uh, you know, uh, especially in a four degree world. And if uh, the Antarctica uh, were to express uh, melting, ice melting, uh, in, in large parts of it, that's also another four or five meters of uh, sea level rise, right? 
so you can imagine there will be no more no more indonesia uh when 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 that happens right so again the, the impact is is very serious the challenge is how does that capture public imagination uh, and that's very hard robert because people want to see proof right if, if things are dangerous people want to see uh dead bodies on the street uh for them to act right we we don't have uh, a strong preventive mindset right uh we tend i mean this is what the former vice president yusuf kala says in indonesians tend to react better than to think preemptively right uh so i think uh my concern is we're not scared enough right and this is why my my organization being active in scaring people and uh, we are fully comfortable with that because when you scare people then they pay attention and they act but if they're not scared they don't pay attention and they don't do anything do you know let me ask you what would happen in indonesia i know this is very speculative but if really the food security issue if crops fail because of these disasters it's hard to make a purchase on the international market what does that what does that look like in indonesia i know it's been a priority of the government for a long time to be food secure and independent and it's been difficult to achieve that so what do you think is that well, definitely social uh social disturbance uh economic desperation and political instability right uh, it's as simple as that because for the majority of indonesians who still make between Two to twenty dollars uh, per day, right? Uh, and that's being generous. A lot of their income is spent on food. I forget the number, but then only after that on education, on on other things, right? Uh, and if the food becomes scarce, scarce, and food becomes more expensive, that's really gonna affect social stability. Uh, keep in mind, this is why fuel subsidy has been very sensitive. Uh, issue you know when i was in government uh you know leaders would be losing sleep over uh, this issue uh, simply because uh there would be riots potential riots right uh, and you know they did have uh, those uh, things after fuel subsidies right so can you imagine what happens if the price of uh, rice the price of uh, tomato and potato and and sambal and and onions uh, and eggs they rise uh is 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 going to lead to i think uh, a very serious social and political disturbances well maybe that's a reason why we all both i know those impacts will be affecting australia as well in variety, as we saw with the black summer fires here 23 million hectares burning so i guess both your comments and that observation about australia as well are good reason why we hope that the glasgow climate meeting achieves very ambitious uh, commitments from countries around the world. But uh, Pakdino, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your conversations and your observations. And uh, yeah, look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. And uh, my my best regards to all ASPE friends and, and families and uh, uh, members. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon.